Local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we got a really packed show for you. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, city councils and how they go about the process of deciding pay raises. Always a contentious issue. UBCM President Arjun Singh will join us to discuss that. Uh, a day after, a big uh, a big charitable announcement from the Cooper family, a huge announcement that will benefit directly Kamloops Search and Rescue. Alan Hobler is in studio to talk about their new fancy headquarters and what happens next. And we'll also do, as we every Tuesday, touch base with Jeffrey Meyer at TRU on U.S. and Canadian politics. But first off, uh, local education issues. Real pleasure to welcome in studio this morning the chair of the Camelot Thompson School Board, Kathleen Carpuck. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming in, by the way. Thank you. Uh, it's kind of a gross day out there, so good day to talk radio. It is. <laughs> um, let's talk about Valley View first because uh, I'm going to put you on the spot because uh, I know you've already hinted to me off the air about some news to come. But last time you and I talked, you were in the process of looking for an architect that was going to close that week. Um, where are we at in that process? So uh, we've actually been interviewing uh, firms this past week. And uh, we're hoping that uh, later this week, hopefully by the end of the week, we'll have an announcement as to who our architect is. So who is it then? Can't tell <laughs> <laughs> uh, as well, you guys clarified, so there it's $34.5 million, if I remember correctly, uh, but anything over a certain amount means you guys have to chip in, which we knew at the time. Uh, you seem to have clarified that in last night's meeting about how that will work. Give me a, give me a lowdown on what, what happens there, how much you're chipping in, and how you're going to come up with it. So... Um, we have some reserves that we put aside. Yeah. We put aside some money uh, a couple of years ago when we knew that the employer's health tax was coming in. And um, we weren't sure how that was going to be funded, whether or not the provincial government was going to be covering that or whether school districts were going to do that. So we put some money aside in a reserve fund. Um, as it is, the provincial government's going to cover that. So we can now use that money as part of um, how we're funding our share of Valley View. Plus, we'll be um, trying to take a little bit out of surplus over the next three years and putting that aside. We don't have to actually contribute the money until the end of the project, so we've got a couple of years to save up. What is it again? It's what, <laughs> two or three million dollars? What is it? Something like that. I don't yeah. have the exact figure <laughs> right in my head, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, some other <laughs> things. I know we heard from the city uh, last week on $10 a day daycare. Uh, Sharon Gregson, who's been a, a big provincial advocate for that, was in town. Uh, I know you met with her as well. Uh, has the school board hammered out a stance either for or against $10 a day as of yet or no? We haven't. It's a really complicated issue. Um, part of the ask with the $10 daycare is that the Ministry of Environment, or the Ministry of Education, I'm sorry, um, take that over completely, yeah. all childcare. And that's a pretty big prospect. Um, in order for us to take a stance on it, we'd have to uh, ask our staff to do a pretty in-depth report for us. And right now, they're pretty busy with a couple other projects. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, is it a decision that could be made in the future, or is it just something that's going to be super tricky to navigate then? It's just something that is so big that... Um, it's just got a lot of ins and outs to it. It's yeah. quite complicated. So we don't really want to uh, take too much staff time around it and we'd like to sort of see where the government's going to go on it. 
Um, over the weekend, I waded a little bit into education issues on Twitter, where, where it was uh, from the from the lens of uh, how school districts work with the city on spaces and new neighborhoods, which is kind of interesting and plays into this next question because you guys heard from city officials at last night's school board meeting uh, concerning uh, the city of Kamloops. Uh, official community plan. So uh, what did you hear and, and sort of how does the school district factor into that? Uh, so we had a presentation from um, City Planning Department and uh, they were focusing at our request on where growth areas are within the city, what the official uh, community plan growth projections are, what neighborhoods are affected. And so some of the information that we heard was that over the next 20 years, they're expecting a 34% increase in the population in Aberdeen, 20% yeah. uh, in sort of the Valley View area, 20% on the North Shore, 20% downtown. Um, but then uh, we have our uh, director of facilities takes that data and he transposes it with the number of kids that we have in each area because we've got some pretty sophisticated software that lets us know where kids are actually located. Yeah. And he uses that growth and the number of housing units that are in that area and the number of kids <laughs> that we know are in that area. And he actually comes up with a density number yeah. for the number of children. And then he looks at those growth projections that the city says and says, okay, so even though the city's saying there's 20% growth downtown, the majority of that's seniors. Mm. So we don't have to worry so much about um, number of kids increasing downtown. Right. But then we look at Aberdeen, which has 34% growth. The primary uh, residence type is single family units. Yes which means high-density kids. Okay. So that gives us an uh, indication that Aberdeen's probably going to be a really high focus for us over the next 20 years because the city's predicting over 6,000 new residents in that area. So with that information, how does it factor in? Because the next big step after the Valley View announcement is you have to figure out a new priority capital list. So if you have information that Aberdeen is kind of an explosion point as far as the potential for a number of new kids, does that factor into formulating that list? Because at the end of the day, um, as much as the school district wants to work hand in glove with the city, uh, you guys cannot arbitrarily build a new school. You need the Ministry of Education to step in and provide that capital funding, which provides a, a bit of a you know, a bit of a pause there. So um, how does that factor in? If now you got this Aberdeen data, will that directly impact this new capital priority list? So it'll certainly have an impact on our uh, priority list. That's one of the factors that we weigh in. We look at um, current student populations. Where do we have um, schools that are bursting at the seams? We look at future population growth. Um, so for instance, if we had a, a school that had diminishing kindergarten entering and lots of grade sevens who are exiting the school and we've got a few portables, we know that that school population might be dropping versus where we have a, a, a neighborhood that we know is predicted to be growing in rapidly. Right. <clears throat> so that would certainly uh, factor into where we put priority lists. And speaking of that, you guys met with Sun Peaks recently. They've got a challenge with their school. They're certainly an area where they're seeing an increase in children. Um, they've outgrown their current uh, portables that they have up there. Um, anything out of that meeting as far as next steps? or? So we struck two committees uh, out of that. We have an action committee that is looking uh, short-term 
uh, where are we going to place portables, how fast are we going to be placing portables, and that's sort of over this summer and next, what are we doing for the immediate future. Plus, we are going to be sending out invitations to join a long-term steering committee to look at what the vision is of a school in that community so that it's not just a school building, but fits within the community plan, uh, can be used by the community after hours, uh, might tag mm. into some other developments for recreation and such so that uh, we get some partnerships going. Would the partnerships help raise funding for it, or would it still be entirely on capital money coming from the province? It depends how we're going, but for instance, um, we can partner um, if the municipality wants a larger gym, the municipality could potentially um, put in some extra funds. That's happened in other areas such as Logan Lake. So they have a larger gym because the community contributed to part of that. Um, so there's always the potential for partnerships that um, we could link things up. Uh, for instance, up in Clearwater, the uh, community has the ice rink is yeah. on the school district property. We have a use agreement. They get to use the land. We get to use the ice rink. Interesting. Uh, last question. You guys, the last night's meeting also sort of formalized, as I understand it, your role in uh, this year's Pride Parade. Tell me a little about that. So we had a request that um, the school district officially participate in a Pride Parade. We've had employees as individuals who've done that, mm. but uh, we felt this year that having a formal presence from the school district would be a positive step. Well, so what does that mean for you guys? A, a float or you're, you're going to march or... We'll probably have a banner that we'll march with, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Excellent. Uh, well, we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen, always good to see you. Thanks for coming in and taking a few minutes out of your morning. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. And that's uh, the school board chair of the Camelot-Thompson School District, Kathleen Carpuck. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show, and UBCM President Arjun Singh will join us next. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show Overcast Day here in Kamloops. Real pleasure to welcome to the program the Union of BC Municipalities President, also a Kamloops Councillor here in Kamloops, Arjun Singh. Good morning, Arjun. How are you? I'm good, Shane. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on. Hey, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I brought you on because uh, this is a pretty familiar routine over the years. You can uh, take city council, no matter where they are, here in Kamloops or elsewhere, and uh, every once in a while they have to tackle the thorny issue of how they're paid. It usually results in a vote. Uh, regardless of the outcome, there's always the spin-off of, okay, listen, how, how is it we get in a situation where city councils can vote themselves a pay raise? Uh, now, interestingly enough, the UBCM is wading into this to try and find some uh, reasonable ways to tackle the issue. So I'm just sort of curious. Uh, I, I don't know if you have enough material gathered yet to know what direction it's going to go in, but uh, maybe paint me a picture here of of why UBCM decided to tackle this and, and what they hope to do at the other end of it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, uh, this is a, a thorny issue, one that the media tends to love to cover. Uh, and uh, you know, although it might seem like a dream for us to be able to set our own salary, it's actually more like a a nightmare or a minefield for local elected councils and boards to have to go through this process. So um, last year, the city of Coquitlam actually uh, put forward a resolution to UBCM asking for some uh, help, uh, and um, uh, that passed through convention last year. So uh, the executive and the staff, we were um, 
working on uh, a, a sort of best practices guide. It's not really anything that would be a, a, a mandating anything for sure, but it's more around what some of the best practices have been. It's, it's still in its really early stages, so there's not really any um, any uh, directions yet that have sort of been uh, been set or any ideas yet that have been kind of put down on paper in terms of a final report. But uh, hopefully by the end of the summer we'll have uh, something available for uh, members all across the province to be able to kind of look at it and kind of see how, how the, might, the, might, the best ways to do that might be. And, I mean, uh, is there any way to get out of, of a council voting itself, you know, whether they say yes or no, but uh, voting on the issue of a pay raise, Arjun? Is there, is there a practice out there that would find another way to do that? Because, as you and I know, I, I get what you're saying, it is definitely a minefield, but uh, from public <laughs> optics and sort of media optics, it's always, you know, it's always tricky to kind of have people react to, oh, you know, what kind of workplace wouldn't vote themselves a pay raise? Is there another way to do it, do you think, or no? Um, I don't know. Like, there are probably other ways to do it. I don't think we landed on, on anything yet. I mean, it's a real question of who becomes, who does it. So then, you know, local governments are always, um, you know, we, we don't we don't really like to give away autonomy. But in this case, you know, <laughs> it is a very thorny thing to have to upset anybody's, you know, anybody's their own pay. is kind of a not a very good situation to be in. It's a historical fact that's been there for, I don't know, probably forever. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the... Um, the direction the, the sort of um, uh, we're going in now is the, you know, around that best practices guide. So I think, you know, part of what we did in Kamloops, and we did this four or five years ago, set up a citizens committee, you know, the recommendation came to council. Uh, ultimately, council had a vote on it, uh, you know, at the end anyways, and it was a split vote, but that committee recommendation did get, uh, did become policy of the city. So, um, you know, there, that's one way of doing it. That's... Um, uh, kind of has a bit more of a citizen sort of a cons- consultative focus on it, uh, which I, which, which I certainly uh, personally support. But I think from the perspective of, um, you know, the, the wide range of communities across BC, uh, to be able to provide them with some, um, options as to how to do it and, 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 and as above board and ethical way, which is, I think, always a government way is to try and do that in a very, very, uh, the best way we can, given the fact that it is very awkward, uh, it would be good. Uh, as far as a timeline to gather input and then and then come out with something on the other side, uh, roughly, what does that process look like right now? Yeah, I think the aim is to have the resource available later this summer. So uh, you know, before September, I think to have something that's kind of the goal uh, before the UBCM convention, uh, and um, you know, then that will kind of exist as sort of a, a resource that will be you know there for for some time. I, I would imagine for local governments to access and uh, and to talk about so. Um, that that's kind of timeline for that. And uh, you know, my favorite topic. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're, we're you know time. You only have one favorite topic, Shane. That, that's I, have, I have so many, but with you, my friend, it's always one favorite topic. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, UBCM, of course, uh, is uh, representing all communities in talks on this marijuana revenue sharing deal. Uh, you and I. Oh, talked, really? Yeah, you and I have talked about this before, but time is running out. Uh, cities are going to start their new budget process, you know, in, in the late late this fall into the winter, uh, and that's when they're going to have to start paying the piper on the startup costs. Uh, you yep. still have some time left here, Arjun, but are are we approaching an end to this process? Are we going to see anything, uh, say, between now and and the winter months, or no? Oh man, I'm hoping. I'm really hoping that's going to happen, and I think. Part of what we've done is a sort of a, a, a good faith measure, if you want to call it, with the negotiations with the province is we're serving financial, UBCM is serving financial officers from local communities all across the province to understand 
a bit better the cost, but the province was asking us for that kind of information. It's it's tough to kind of uh, totally nail down because that cost is incremental in some ways, but I think uh, we'll have that information. That com- our committee is still continuing to meet, and I'm hoping that the province, I mean, you know, given all, all the sort of discussion we've had about it um, on your show and other places, um, you know, there's been, I think, a, a commitment by the province to uh, you know, high level to, to make an agreement, but it hasn't happened yet. So we're still working on that diligently, uh, and hopefully, uh, I'm 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 with you. I'm, I'm obviously I'm hoping uh, very quickly we come to some sort of understanding of the of the revenue share. Uh, local communities all across the province are expending a lot of uh, money uh, on this issue, and not just the idea of uh, uh, retail stores, but also agricultural productions. Those applications coming in through uh, regional districts, so. It, it's a it's a pressing issue. Um, on the timing side, though, Arjun, I mean, uh, you, again, you guys have had a fair amount of time. I don't think there's been there's obviously been pressure, but no one I don't think is screaming uh, for a resolution yet. But I suspect that when it comes to a new budget cycle for cities, when they finally look, yeah. okay, we we're now going to have to seriously tackle these costs. I think the pressure probably is going to start to rise late summer and into the fall. Um, yep. You, exactly. Yeah, you feel that as well, and then will that further yep. sort of put pressure on getting a resolution sooner than later? We we continue to push, and uh, and and that's 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 been been our, our our focus on this file for, as you know, since you know quite some time since December January, and uh, and we continue continue to work on that. And we can also continue to work in good faith with the province in terms of what they told us they need to kind of help move that discussion further. So. We are doing that. We are doing a survey of, of costs, and when that once that information is sort of collected in terms of the province, we hope that it'll happen uh, as as quickly as it can. Because um, as you as you as you're very well pointing out, this is uh, coming into another budget cycle, and uh, the costs aren't just dropping. The costs have been happening for for more than a year. Um, so we need to kind of get resolution on that. So, are you a red Kush or a black widow man? Uh, speak English, Shane, please. <laughs> uh, origin, always fun. Uh, thanks, okay. man. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. Always good to have you on. Thanks, Shane. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, will do. That's Arjun Singh, is president of the Union of BC Municipalities, uh, talking about uh, two things. Uh, number one, as you heard there, uh, continued efforts to find a resolution on marijuana revenue sharing agreement with communities, as well as trying to tackle the thorny issue of how councils uh, tackle the issue of pay raises, usually through a vote to say yes or no. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll hear from Camelot Search and Rescue a day after a big announcement from the Cooper family where they will get themselves a new headquarters. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, as of yesterday, the Cooper family making a big announcement, $40 million investment into the city. As part of that, Kamloops Search and Rescue is getting itself a new headquarters, the first permanent full-time headquarters for many, many years. Real pleasure to welcome in studio this morning the search manager for Kamloops Search and Rescue, Alan Hobler. Alan, how are you? Good morning. Uh, pretty good week for you, huh? It's a phenomenal week for us at Camelot <laughs> Search and Rescue. <laughs> all right, before we get into what happens next and, and all of the minutiae, just uh, totally out of curiosity, uh, let's turn the clock back now that the news is out there. You no longer have to keep it secret, but yeah. maybe shed a little light on um, 
how this progressed? At what point were you guys sort of contacted and, and what were those first few conversations like and what was the feeling? Like, oh my God, this is happening kind of thing. Or? Yeah, well, of course, we've been searching for a permanent star yeah. hall for about five decades. Um, we have a committee that's been actively looking and uh, the Cooper Family Foundation reached out to, to our members and, and uh, said we would like to have a chat with you, but you have to keep it very confidential. And, and so uh, we, we had several chats and it all seemed way too good to be true. We were all yeah. very kind of skeptical at first. Really? Yes. At what point, at what point in the conversation did you kind of, did the question marks leave and you went, okay, this is, this is a thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a long time coming. I mean, we, we kept looking and going, wow, is this real? Is yeah. this real? And, yeah. and uh, for me, it wasn't until yesterday seeing the unveiling and seeing the, seeing the billboards uh, get get uh, um, unveiled. Uh, it was really hit home, and it was like this is actually going to happen. Yeah. So um, you you mentioned to me off the air that uh, you had to kind of keep this uh, close to your chest as well. So uh, at what point did the rest of the team learn, and what was their reaction in the moment where you said, "Okay, this is." This is what's about to happen, or this is happening, or however it went down. Yeah, it was, it was a secret to everybody except for a few members on the team. Right up um, to the announcement? Yes. Right up to the announcement, wow. yeah. Okay. So we invited them out to a special event. We couldn't say what it was. Um, and we invited a bunch of our neighboring teams out as well and, and couldn't tell them what it was. So Some, I think, were able to guess it, but... Yeah. Uh, but they didn't know any of the details. <laughs> what was the reaction among the team? Uh, it was pretty phenomenal, yeah. 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 Wow, that's great. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the Cooper family, obviously with a very generous uh, donation, not only to yourselves, but the Search Dog Association as well. Uh, you're going to get a pretty fancy new facility at some point. Uh, give me an idea here, for the best of your knowledge, uh, next steps before you, this thing, whole thing comes to fruition. We've got to kind of build it first a little bit, I assume. Yeah, and, uh, con construction's underway now. Um, uh, we're hoping to be in the new hall sometime in sort of early-ish uh, 2020. And uh, we're, we're designing what we want inside. Uh, there's, it's a very spacious facility. It's yeah. probably one of the larger SAR halls in the province. Wow. Um, and uh, it's going to give us lots of room to be able to do what we want in there. Yeah, my understanding is, uh, what, 11,780 square foot facility. Uh, there'll be a canine physical training center, a regional command center, lecture hall, boardroom, a decompression station. Yeah. A, what's what's that? I assume, uh, I'm figuring like video games and TV or something. But. <laughs> it's going to be a place basically where we can hang out and where we we can um, just you know talk and chat. Okay. Search and rescue can be quite stressful, and it's good to have a place where we can just sit down and hang out with the other members and just talk about what went on on, on recent searches. Or, yeah. Um, uh, to some degree, Kamloops Search and Rescue has been sort of the central hub for the search and rescue teams in the region. Uh, you're one of the larger ones. Uh, I know there was a push to do a lot of regionalized training here. Uh, tell me, because uh, the part of the caught my eye was sort of the, the thing about the sort of regional command center. Um, in, the, in the context of having this new headquarters, what does that do for, for your team as kind of increasing that capacity as being sort of the central group in this particular region? Yeah, we're not I'm trying to take anything away from any of the other teams. No, not um, at all. But. Yeah, but uh, you know, geographically, we were kind of centered with with some of our our teams that surround us. So it is sort of a good logical choice for for regionalized training to come here, and certainly we're going to have the space to be able to do that as yeah. well too. Okay, fantastic. Uh, what does it do for you operationally? I mean, once you have this new space and the new facility and uh, a bay to put all your stuff, yeah. I mean, does it mean more members? Does it, I mean, what does it do for your capacity to do the job? Now? Yeah, we're, we're hoping it's going to bring in more members. Uh, certainly, we're hoping it's going to increase our retention rates as well, too. We have a high attrition amongst our membership. 
Uh, we really want members to stay longer now that we have our own space and someplace where members can just come and hang out and feel like they belong, feel like they're in a home. Um, uh, we believe that's going to help with retention as well too. So we'll see our numbers increasing and we're going to have more room to do more stuff and to have more equipment as well too. Currently, you know, we have a lot of equipment stored outside of, of where we currently are and that's, yeah. that's not good at all. So when you, when you say new equipment, what are you hoping for? What's ideal? Well, uh, perhaps a boat, um, perhaps, okay. um, uh, you know, more snowmobiles or ATVs and maybe another truck. You don't have a boat now? Uh, currently, we don't have a boat. Okay. We, we have agreements with, with um, some stakeholders here locally that, that loan out equipment or loan out boats to us when we need them. Okay. So if you get the new equipment, you get some additional personnel, you get a sense of stability among your staff, uh, that should do wonders, I assume, for your ability to go out and uh, just, you know, when a search comes to kind of do it in a more of a broad spectrum, quicker, faster, better kind of thing. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and our rollouts are, should be faster faster as well um, so and we're a little bit more centrally located we're located close to a highway now too so we don't have to drive through town to be able to get our trucks out, out of out of town. <laughs> so an all-around ideal situation all, all around and when are you guys gonna be in the new place uh, we're hoping or you know earlyish 2020 may, maybe February March um, um, we'll see it's my understanding that uh, construction is kind of busy these days and yeah. it's hard to get trade so that might slow things down a bit. Okay. With the uh, Cooper family donation, is it specifically into the headquarters? Will there be any leftover money you think to go anywhere else or uh, that's that's going to be where it's at? Yeah, so they're focusing on the construction yeah. uh, for now uh, and as well as they're going to be covering our lease costs as well. So we're going to be not only are they building us a building but they're covering all of our leasing costs as well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? Uh, I mean, um, you know, full disclosure, Todd's Todd's my next door neighbor. I know he's a, he's a he's a solid dude. Yeah. And he and Monica are wonderful people. But um, what is that sort of what kind of reaction do you have <laughs> deep down inside <laughs> when somebody like Todd comes knocking and all of a sudden there you go? Yeah, yeah, it feels wonderful. You're quite right. They're wonderful people, and and you know they weren't just looking at our organization, what we do operationally. They yeah. really focused on our members and who our members are and how yeah. much our members contribute, and they really wanted to ensure that that. Um, our members were feeling valued and appreciated and that's why we're seeing these additional things incorporated into this design too that supports our membership. Did he give you any hint to what it was that kind of put you guys on his radar for uh, groups to, to focus on? I, I don't know specifically. I don't know who else they were looking at. Uh, yeah. They just approached us when they felt like we were the ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how's the search season been so far? I know we're going into yeah. sort of the move from the winter season now into the summer season. Yeah, it's it's been relatively quiet, and we're, we're always hesitant when we use the Q word. Um, yeah, uh, we we've had a couple searches in the last two months, but otherwise pretty pretty quiet. So. Um, we do have these long dry spells sometimes and often they're broken by two or three searches on the same day. So. Yeah. What's traditionally the busy season? Is it more the summer outdoor activity because it's warm or is it the winter because it presents more difficulties when people go outdoor? Yeah, it, it varies. Like some years winter is just incredibly busy for us yeah. and other years it's the summer months and sometimes spring and fall can be busy too. Um, one search can take, you know, five, six days sometimes, and that that is really taxing and can really fill up a season too. So it, uh, sometimes it's 
dependent on one single event. Yeah, and there's been a couple of ones that have been open-ended. Uh, ben Tyner down in Merritt, yeah. uh, Ryan Stuka up in Sun Peaks, still nothing on either. anything. Any news on either of those fronts? No, no news on either of those. Uh, you know, I know I, they're still open files, so you know the investigation's open and the search is not not concluded. We're just not going out until there's, there's new information. Yeah, that must be frustrating for you guys, I assume. It is. It's you know we don't stop thinking about it. Um, um, we keep what ifing it and uh, you know I know our members are, are keen to do more if there's there's something more we can do yeah uh, any word for people who are heading out into sort of the summer season now heading out hiking and that kind of thing uh, I know it's in the winter there was some talk about uh, some some I think there was one case where somebody had brought a piece of equipment thankfully and it saved their lives so I don't know if people need to in the summer season have a certain something on them yeah uh, absolutely yeah um, we, we recommend uh, everybody check out our partner website adventuresmart.com CA. Um, uh, uh, prevention is the key to survival when you get caught out in unpredicted situations. Uh, Adventure Smart CA provides um, itinerary lists and uh, equipment lists that you should be bringing based on the type of activity you're doing. And they also um, coach you through the process of how to set up a responsible person that can follow up in case you don't come home. Awesome. And uh, last question before I let you go. I know that uh, on the funding side, uh, there have been a long a bunch of years with, uh, with some serious asks. Um, there was some addressing of that issue recently with the provincial government. Uh, are you happy with the new funding model and has money started to flow yet? Or? Uh, money hasn't started to flow, but yes, we're definitely happy. This is the most money coming in to search and rescue ever in the province. So okay. we're very excited about that. Hope, hopefully this is the trend and it's not just going to stop here. Um, you know, search and rescue teams have become more technical, um, requiring more training, and all of that requires more funds as well. So, yeah. well, hopefully, we see more funding come in. Any idea when the funding starts to arrive? Uh, I can't say specifically. Uh, we have an agency um, that that sort of oversees the volunteer search and rescue teams uh, that are involved in how that money is going to be divvied out. So. Uh, that's in the works. Um, um, I'm just not sure when we're going to see that money. All right. Alan, uh, always good to talk to you when it's good news. Uh, so often you and I talk when it's not so good yeah. news. But uh, congratulations on a new headquarters. I know this has been a long, long time coming, so yeah. it must feel pretty good. It feels great. Yeah. <laughs> you get a big smile yeah. on your face. Uh, that's Kamloops Search and Rescue Search Manager Alan Hobler. Thanks to the Cooper Family Foundation, the beneficiaries of a brand new headquarters. Quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk to Jeffrey Myers from TRU as we do every Tuesday. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Always a pleasure to touch base as we do every single Tuesday morning uh, with TRU's Jeffrey Myers, a lawyer, a lecturer up at the university. Uh, good morning, Jeff. How are you? Oh, good morning, Shane, and good morning to your listeners. Um, lots to talk about this week. I thought we'd, uh, for a change, start uh, north of the border and then work our way south. But uh, um, interesting times politically here. Uh, the Green Party uh, made a major win, uh, the second only to Elizabeth May in our country's history in a by-election in Nanaimo. Uh, lots of talk uh, with you look at some of the provincial stuff out the East Coast mm -hmm. about this party surging, maybe the benefit of some protest votes, uh, what have you. And then you throw in the big question mark about a decision to come uh, from uh, those two prominent liberals who, who, who got booted out. Um, yeah. And Jane Philpott and um, the, the other one is named just escaping me. It should Jody, Wilson uh, Jody Wilson Raybould. Jody Wilson Raybould, who potentially could say, hey, listen, we're going to go green in here, which, which provide another sort of 
um, complexity. But uh, what's your take on this? Is this is this uh, is this a thing? Are we going to see a Green Party? Sir? Are people mad at, at the system as a whole? And well, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, the politics of the Green, the politics of, of the Green Party are interesting. I mean, I think the Green Party in BC is not exactly the same entity as the federal um, Green Party. Um, so I think that's important uh, to sort of uh, to sort of take into account, particularly when we're talking um, about BC. But I think, yeah, you're right that these recent events, the by-election, uh, adding a second member of the caucus, that very lonely caucus now, Elizabeth May has a has a caucus uh, mate, um, and then you have this election in Prince Edward Island, of course, which people were speculating maybe the Greens would even win, right? And I think they came in second, right, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Um, now, and, and so, and so, but this really does relate back to the old discussion that if clearly Canadians don't, I'm um, not clearly, I should, I should say for Canadians, but at least BCers, we've had three times going at the proportional representation can, obviously that was a major election, fe- federal election issue in 2015, uh, and it was, it seemed to be a broken promise, but it's not clear if Canadians are going to hold the Liberal Party to account for that. Um, but I do think, you know, the Greens, for the Greens to really break through, I think it would require uh, likely some kind of proportional or mixed system. And obviously we know that uh, provincially we've kind of slammed the door on that now. And federally, you know, uh, Mr. Trudeau didn't do anything to advance the ball on that. It's not clear, you know, where that polls with the public or whatever. That doesn't mean the Greens couldn't have a breakthrough and get more seats or whatever. But we're, I think we're clearly entering into the 2015 uh, federal election here in Canada with a weak and divided left. You know, Jagmeet Singh has not yet sort of, uh, I think, sort of, got control or direction over the NDP party that looks to be, you know, competent to run as a real um, player for, for, for opposition, let alone government. Um, and the Green Party, I do think that they're, I, I, I worry that, you know, these, these kind of vote split, it's, it's, not a, it's not based on the portion of the popular vote. If it were, it would be a different story, but this is going to be distributing uh, these votes. The people who are angry at the Liberals are going to go in a lot of different directions. Uh, so it's not clear what's going to happen. We may be entering into a period on the left, much like the period on the right uh, that was experienced by Conservatives in the years after, um, you know, Kim Campbell and, and Brian Mulroney before, and, and then with the Reform Party and, and the Unite the Right and all that took a long time. It looks like it may be on the left that we experienced something like that. And, I, you know, I, I don't take it lightly and I don't have the answer to it. I certainly don't think, you know, that should mean that people vote strategically and become super cynical. Um, but I do think it means to take a long, hard look at our institutions and ask ourselves whether they're really working for us. But it's certainly this is an encouraging sign seeing the Greens out there. If Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpoll had the kind of political courage to sort of take the jump and say, you know what? This is a good home for us, and we're going to take this party to the next level. That would be some very competent people. I mean, Elizabeth May is already a very competent person. Um, you know, so they could be taken more seriously as a political force. And like I say, Jagmeet Singh's long time out of parliament and then sort of late coming in and, and being a little uneasy on his feet is just, it, it, they're weak. there's a weakness for the NDP. There's clearly a weakness uh, for the liberals. And, you know, we'll see what and how far, um, you know, the kind of um, politics of a person like Jason Kenney or, um, you know, um, Doug Ford will, influ- will influence or help Andrew Scheer sort of nationally. I don't know. But I think there it's as a person on the left, I'm quite concerned about what's about to happen, although I'm obviously take seriously the fact that the Greens have kind of seen these kinds of games, because I think it suggests we may be nearing a tipping point, both here and I think in the United States as well, where people recognize that the environment is an existential issue. And there's not really much point in talking about jobs or the economy or taxes if you have a planet that's not livable. 
Uh, just out of curiosity and check in, I know you and I talked about uh, Bill 21, which is uh, a big deal in Quebec, the secularism mm-hmm. bill, which is aimed at uh, religious symbols, uh, essentially yeah. meaning that, uh, you know, you couldn't wear things like turbans, kippahs, crucifixes, uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. jobs, yeah, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, it was, it raised quite an uproar. It's now in uh, a set of hearings that began a little earlier this week. Uh, mm-hmm. So far, those hearings have been sort of calm and, and rational. There haven't been any big explosions there, but uh, what are you, what are you looking for keeping an eye on as this debate sort of unfolds? Well, I mean, what I'm looking to keeping an eye on is to, is to seeing, you know, how serious um, the government of Quebec is about pushing through, um, you know, with the use of the notwithstanding clause, right? Like this, this is a piece of litigation, a piece of uh, a piece, a law that, that, that needs to be scrutinized by the courts in a kind of public way so that people can see, you know, just how directly it engages with some of our core charter values, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to be a, an, a, a, a kind of ugly collision, um, but it's important that it be subject to, um, to review by the courts. And so what I worry about is if the notwithstanding clause is used in some way to insulate this act from scrutiny, it's going to bring in what I think is a draconian um, law, which is totally out of keeping with, I think, the values of most Canadians. So, I mean, again, I've read the law, I've looked at it, um, and, you know, it, it, what it literally involves prohibiting people from wearing any kind of religious signifiers, including ones which uh, people have, you know, sincerely held beliefs around, um, and, you know, which they are entitled to protection under our Constitution. So I just, I, I, I think it would really put, this would be a kind of um, crisis for the Charter, I think, if we're not able to sort of lever if we're if the if if this thing can escape charter scrutiny so i'm keeping a very close eye on it and thinking about um as a question of charter law as a question of section 2a you know freedom of religion i'm thinking about um you know the type of arguments which can be mobilized on behalf of the many people who are going to find themselves not able to access services or not able to work for the government of quebec should this uh, come to fruition in its current form uh south of the border uh some interesting uh expanded showdowns between uh, essentially, Congress, the White House, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, of course. Uh, interesting story this week out of the Washington Post. They're saying that Trump and his allies are working very actively to block more than 20 separate investigations by the Democrat into his actions as president, his personal mm-hmm. finances, his tax returns, mm-hmm. administration policies, the list goes on. Um, as you watch this, uh, what are you thinking as far as uh, testing the boundaries of, of how that government works down there? I'm starting to think more and more. Um, that Nancy Pelosi's right, that she's figured out Donald Trump better than any of us. That she's been saying for weeks his strategy is to goad the Democrats into impeachment. Right? If you look at the articles of impeachment that are filed against were filed against Richard Nixon, I mean, one of them relates to failing to provide subpoenas, to failing to respond to subpoenas for documents, and to comply with the request of Congress. Right? So, <clears throat> um, you know, if he can just sort of, and, and so rather than you know introducing articles of impeachment, what the Democrats have decided to do in Congress is that they've decided they'll continue to investigate and follow up on leads from the Mueller report, and then you know see what they can uncover. And they're kicking the can down the road, frankly, and I've I've been critical of that. Uh, towards immediately starting impeachment hearings. But in the end, uh, I think the president's calling their bluff and he's saying, okay, well, I'm not going to cooperate with any more uh, subpoenas or any more requests for documents or any oversight, period. 
so you can do as you wish. And again, that would just be another basis, a strong basis for impeachment, because, of course, um, you know, presidents, you know, uh, as recently as Barack Obama, you know, his attorney general, Eric Holder, was was investigated by Congress and he didn't like it. You know, they never do. But they have it. You do cooperate. And eventually, you know, that's the way the system works. And you have to litigate when there's a dispute. Um, and the same thing is true, you know, with the Democratic Congress, you know, exercising oversight over the George W. Bush White House, particularly around uh, around intelligence services and interrogation techniques. But these were these are very important sort of singular um, examples of something that does happen from time to time and creates a crisis. But it, what's happening now with the Justice Department under William Barr and with uh, uh, Mr. Trump now having sort of fired anybody who disagreed with him is a blanket refusal to cooperate at all without with oversight. And that is why some uh, lawmakers and um, lawyers are describing this as a potential constitutional crisis, because you're not saying I won't comply with discipline. I don't have a legal obligation to do so. Let's litigate it. You're saying every single possible call, every single subpoena, every single request for documents, I don't have to abide by it. And it's certainly uh, the fantasy of the far right in the United States that presidential authority under the Constitution is unhinged and superior to either the courts or Congress. But the actual Constitution, which ironically, the hyper-conservative crowd say that they're, they view as a kind of um, religious document, which one should never um, uh, uh, bend from, itself is very clear that, that the oversight is exercised by the Congress and, and judicial review is done by the courts. And there's, there's no legal basis for the refusal to comply at all in any way whatsoever. I mean, it's not like the Mueller report, in, as Mr. Um, Trump says, it exonerated him. It explicitly did not exonerate him and invited further investigations. That's what Congress is supposed to do, and it's doing it, and he's going to block it in the way that he is. It's going to force a legal showdown, and if he can run down the clock until the next election, uh, he can say, look, I'm being... Um, you know, I'm, I'm the victim of another witch hunt. But also, even worse, if he does force the hand of Congress and he does, uh, and they do file articles of impeachment and does go to the Senate, we all know that the way things stand, uh, he'll get acquitted and then he'll be able to run on that. So, you know, Mr. Trump is uh, is no dummy. And in the end, he's he he is playing this off in a, in a, in a kind of way which I can see the writing on the wall for. And it causes me great uh, reason for concern. One of the things that uh, that always kind of in the back of my head when I watch stuff like this, and you know, experts are calling this the most expansive White House obstruction effort in <clears throat> decades, and certainly there yeah. a great number of his supporters, uh, yeah. uh, some in the GOP, some listening to the radio right now, who are like, "Yeah, good for him," you know, "Screw those lefties," uh, mm-hmm. do all this stuff, woohoo! And you know, <laughs> uh, I always think that they don't ever think about what happens when they're not in government, right? Like we're seeing a lowering of the bar, which. Uh, is fine for some people who support this particular president, who support this particular party when they're in power because it benefits them. Look at us. We're, we're getting things done. We're, we're screwing over those lefties, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what happens yeah. when you lower the bar and suddenly it's a Democrat, uh, you know, president, the Democrats are in power, and suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, because of what Trump has done, he's opened up all these avenues uh, tested the boundaries, found new ways to be obstructionist, and it's being mm-hmm. used by your political foes. And suddenly you're like mm-hmm. your hair on fire, even though your party, your leader set that standard. And that's that's what really bothers me. Well, that's the essence, I think, of the political crisis in the in the United States right now on so many different levels. I mean, you can think about, just to get a little wonky, I mean, you can think about the filibuster, right, in the Senate, which requires a sort of higher 
um, number of votes and a pure majority in order to pass something in the way in which for years that had not been permitted to allow sort of a government who ever had the majority, even if it was a narrow one, to pass their uh, legislation. Uh, and then that was changed in a very hyper-partisan environment, and now it's, it's very hard to drag that back once it's been changed. The other thing that's developed, and again, it's not, it's, it's been a long time coming, is a kind of, it's really, depending on how you look at it, I mean, again, legal historians will say that usually say since World War II, at the end of World War II, the presidency, because of the vast war-making powers of the United States and the introduction of new forms of technology and the needs for split-second decision-making in the atomic age, as well as the increasing complexity of the global economy and America's position at its helm, that all of a sudden the presidency became just this kind of focal point in concentration for um, for the American um, government, and it ended up meaning, uh, meaning a lot of deferral happened around the executive. And then there was the abuse that happened in the Nixon years, and there was a kind of a reaction to that where there was more and greater oversight again put over the presidency then you had the clinton years where the is most people agreed sensible people agreed that the oversight you know kind of uh was was probably too much um but what happened is then you had the events of 9-11 and the george w bush presidency and a kind of state of emergency in the united states in that time the presidency was was greatly empowered right and there was hope when obama came in in 2008 that he would sort of roll back some of the imperial presidency that George W. Bush had um, built up. And, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, the temptations of that, of those powers of the advisors around Mr. Obama, you know, it was, it was decided to maintain, you know, a very powerful presidency in that way. And that's since become the norm. Um, again, Mr. I don't think Mr. Obama abused it in the, abused it in the same way, although some people have argued his policies around extrajudicial killings that were egregious, but I don't have a position on that, but I don't think he abused it in the same way, um, that he that, for example, George W. Bush did. But Mr. Trump is taking things to a whole new level. But he 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 inherited um, a system which had been um, kind of who, who's, where the capacity for oversight had been eroded. Um, and again, it, mostly out of a spirit of deference to the presidency. Well, the president is best situated to make that determination. President has to make determinations fast. But really, the 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 constitution itself is sort of very clear in giving uh, Congress this power to impeach, you know, judges to impeach presidents. They, if, if there's any, if there's any of the three branches, you know, which exercise a kind of super priority, it's the, con it's the Congress, not the presidency. And, and remember that the founding fathers were very concerned. They knew that there was a need for an executive power and somebody to play the role of the sovereign. Um, but they were very concerned about America, you know, kind of going down the same road as Europe was, which was a kind of a time where you had many demagogic and um, abusive um, kings and, and monarchs. And the idea was to get away from that and put an apparatus of law around the president and make the republic um, stand over and above any individual. Right. That's the whole idea of the rule of law. Um, so that's what this is really all about. And the fact that, you know, people can't agree on those basic values or see this in the same way is a sign that we're at a kind of a tipping point, you know, for our political culture and, you know, a kind of important historical moment, I think. Yeah. Uh, further to this whole obstructionist thing, an interesting situation is developing out of that, and I'm curious to get your take on it. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., who met in 2016 in that, uh, that uh, now infamous Trump Tower meeting, uh, cited in the Mueller report between himself, Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, a Russian lawyer, uh, to set up uh, getting some supposed dirt on Hillary Clinton. If it's what you say, I love it. 
<laughs> uh, he has been subpoenaed. He has, uh, according to reports, twice refused to uh, yeah. go in front of a Republican-led committee looking into the whole mm-hmm. Russia thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And now it seems like they're in a kind of a difficult decision. Uh, they now either have the choice uh, to uh, level a contempt charge or find some way to, to crowbar him uh, out of his corner and in front of the committee, or they say, okay, well, you're the president's kid, and uh, we need to find some way to let you slide. What do you make about <laughs> that? Um, well, I mean, first starters, let's remember that, you know, one of the things that we were all looking for in the days and weeks before the Mueller report um, was released, and I don't mean the, the actual Mueller report was released, I mean that the Mueller report was given to um, uh, Attorney General Barr and, <laughs> and sat on for a couple of weeks. I mean, at that point, we were all saying, I wonder, we were, and one of the things I probably have said it myself was, I wonder, let's look and see, is there, a, is there an indictment issued uh, by uh, Bob Mueller against Donald Trump Jr., particularly in connection with the meeting that you described, um, and where, where he, he had famously that utterance, if it's what you say, I love it. Um, and then also a person like Jared Kushner, who's obviously very close to the president as well, and who, who had been alleged to have been involved in various back channels with the Russians. And I was you know, thinking that the, if these guys are going to be indicted, they'll be indicted before the Mueller report comes out, and it will shape everything, right? Because it, once it once you talk about family, a person's son or you know, and their son-in-law, I mean, it's it's getting that's a pressure point that you it's hard to predict what would happen. Um, you know, we're sort of just uh, and and so we were looking at when that didn't happen. I concluded based on that that at least in the within the remit of uh, Bob Mueller's investigation that he had assessed that there was not sufficient evidence to issue indictments. Okay, I don't know what he's now. Remember a lot of the stuff as you say where it's not within his specific remit, he's given it over to the Southern District uh, of New York or other courts to look at, or there's, there's multiple, as you said, I think 16 congressional investigations going on, could be following up on leads. And some of the redacted stuff in the report, by the way, is about those investigations. So there's still things we don't really know, but I think it's right that we should sort of wonder what's going on, because this is a, this is a, this is a Senate committee. This is not a congressional committee. So it's a, it's a Republican-led a committee. It's a committee where I know for a fact that the there's some there's been decent bipartisan cooperation. Um, so I'm not sure what they're up to or why they want to speak to him or what it's about. But uh, I'm sure we'll find out soon enough. But um, you know, to my mind, if there had been anything really obvious and really central to this whole drama, uh, you know, that engage, that involved Donald Trump Jr. I mean, it, you would think it would have already happened. I think when we look back on this period in history, one of the things we might sort of think is. You know, some of these people have been so brazen, you know, Shane, they've been so brazen in terms of what they're doing. Donald Trump Jr. and his father both are just there. They just say aloud, you know, well, I fired him because it was getting to be a real problem. You know what I mean? If it's what you say, I love it. And then they get these um, statements. made, And then then the question is, are those you can know it's hard to with crimes that require specific intent. It's hard to know from a statement like that. Does the person is that a uh, is that a statement of intent or is that a joke? What is that? Right. Um, and when everything's so transparent and so out in the open, um, you know, even when you get an investigation, you just sort of have your own judgment about what you already saw. Um, and, and we're moving towards, you know, in our politics, uh, particularly with a president who's not particularly interested in um, security or privacy or message control, a kind of um, open, um, you know, thing here. So I don't know what else would be going on or what this could be about, but it'll be interesting to to keep an eye on, but I think certainly the fact this is a Senate committee controlled by the Republicans, which is calling him, that's that's a real head-scratcher, so we'll look forward to figuring out what's going on there. Uh, and the last topic is, and it's an interesting one, uh, you and I have talked a lot about some of the 
the white nationalist route yeah. that Mr. Trump has displayed. Uh, yeah. And he is uh, he has met with a guy who uh, is a, a, a leader of Hungary uh, who's rolled yeah, back Victor democratic Orban. checks, yeah. uh, mused about creating a European ethno state. He's mm-hmm. erected razor wire fence to keep migrants out. Uh, really been sort of uh, the bull in the herd over in the EU and not in a good way. Yet here's Hungary's far-right Prime Minister Viktor Orban in the White House meeting with Donald Trump, a meeting in yeah. the White House he has long sought and yeah. been ignored by, by other yeah. presidents before this. So what do you read into that? Well, I mean, it's it's nothing new, right? But I mean, one of the things, that we, one of these symptoms of a kind of creeping authoritarianism, I think, is the fact that you know, there's, there, there are these leaders other than Trump who are Trump-esque around the world, right? And some of them have either been given a boost of adrenaline by Trump's election or have come in after. Um, now, Viktor Orban himself, who has been around since 2006, and, you know, we've, there's ideologically similar governments, which have also, uh, to my, I think, I believe, at least in, in, in Poland, I think possibly in Romania as well. But it's shocking because these are, we're talking, especially in Hungary specifically, we're talking about a, um, you know, a country that was, you know, uh, was subject to to uh, occupation by the Third Reich in the Second war, World War, and then was under the Iron Curtain in the in the Cold War, um, and then had this fragile kind of liberal democratic experiment, um, and and pulled the plug on it, right? Um, and that's exactly the kind of um, way in which, I mean, it's quite obvious that Vladimir Putin and, um, you know, uh, those around him would like to see things work. They'd like to see this short-term liberal democracy experiment in Central Europe in places like the Ukraine, you know, which is even more in their backyard, but also in places like uh, Hungary in their old uh, orbit, uh, right in the heart of Europe, you know, sort of say, oh, we don't have to do the democratic thing. We have this other option available. Um, And it's hitched its ride with this anti-immigrant sentiment with with uh, anti-Semitism, which is, of course, uh, always there, and uh, Islamophobia, which is easy to trigger in the context of our post-9-11 world. And, you know, even, you know, just other bogeymen like homophobia and transphobia, but mostly fear of migrants, right? And then this kind of anti-European feeling, this kind of um, pushback on the European Union. And, of course, the European Union, which pools the sovereignty of all of these Western states, makes them a powerful threat, at least in the worldview of somebody like uh, Vladimir Putin. So there's no question that since, uh, you know, his days, as we, we've heard the accounts, right, that he used to be a KGB officer and he was sitting in his, uh, I think his, his office was in Dresden or something like that in East Germany as the, as, the, as the Soviet Union, you know, dissolved. And then as the Berlin Wall came down just or a year earlier, as the Berlin Wall came down, thinking it was a humiliation, thinking from that perspective, what would they want? And so what um, Mr. Trump has done in his kind of love of demagogues, and I think his desire to have that kind of um, power, he, he's obviously been attracted to other leaders who are like this around the world. And so he, we've seen it with President Duterte in the Philippines. Um, and we've seen, you know, him aligned with somebody like Nigel Farage in the UK, who's now, of course, leading an effort in the far right to in the European elections again. But really shockingly, Viktor Orban is really one of the worst offenders. And the mere fact that he comes from the heart of Europe um, and that, um, you know, he has really been shunned by the European Union and he's really sought to destroy and undermine the European Union and the values that it stands for. And that he's been shunned by European allies, but also shunned by American presidents, again, going back not just to the Obama years, but I don't even think... I think Mr. Bush met with him maybe once, but I don't think 
I think he came in in 2005. I'm, 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 I'm not sure, but he's not somebody who's been, you know, given the red carpet, right? And so, and again, you see this in that the, um, that this administration and Mr. Trump in particular is sort of willing to reach out to these people. Look, it's not that other presidents haven't had, you know, um, relationships, you know, with, for example, the Saudis, right? It's not like Mr. Tr- Mr. Trump is the first person to reach out and not care about the crimes of the Saudi royal family. But the brazenness, the, um, you know, and you think of the Khashoggi killing, but you just think the sort of way in which he sought to cultivate relationships with, with individuals, including those who would think to be rivals, like Mr. Lee and Mr. Putin, almost a kind of admiring relationship. It's just another clue that the scale should fall off our eyes and we should be reminded that we're not dealing with a kind of typical democratic um, leader. We're talking about somebody who's viewing the world in what's obviously a, um, a very kind of authoritarian prism. Okay, and and that that means that there are behaviors and actions and the results that are going to come about from what we do are less predictable than they usually are because we're not used to that. Jeff, always a pleasure. Always a lot to talk about. Thank you, sir. Oh, always appreciate it, Shane. We'll talk to you next week. That was Jeffrey Myers, lawyer, lecturer up at TRU, as he joins us every Tuesday talking U.S. and Canadian politics through a legal lens. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Jeffrey Myers. And that brings to an end this edition of The Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL. Same time tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswap from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.